has been done for the art of the violin cello playing. Hello and welcome to another episode of Forgotten Cello Music. Coming to you from Traveling Cello. Hi, I'm Aaron. On today's episode, episode number 18. Episode 18 comes from the book Das Violoncello in Seine Geschichte, The Violoncello and Its History, by Joseph Vasilevsky. This 19th century book deals exclusively with the cello. After some 200 pages of dealing with schools of cello and various eras of cello, he writes a concluding section of about four pages. The conclusion is quite an interesting section, and I found that it merited a special episode because it deals so broadly with the history of the cello and then where the cello might be headed and hopes of where it could be headed. Now, from The Violin Cello and Its History by Joseph Vasilevsky, this is the conclusion. In taking a retrospective glance at the progressive development which violoncello playing has displayed from the beginning of the present century, it is evident that this branch of art has reached as great a degree of perfection that it seems scarcely possible it can rise much higher. This result is not only to be ascribed to the deserving work of the leading violoncellists, and here must be called to mind, besides Romberg and Dotzauer, preeminently Friedrich Kummer, August Francom, and François Servet, but also to those famous German composers who brought the violoncello within the sphere of their productions. Already had Haydn and Mozart appropriated to this noble instrument in their string quartets, passages which contributed to the furtherance of the technique and the possibility of expression. Beethoven went much further even than this, not only in his string and pianoforte trios, as well as in his quartets, but also in his sonatas, Opus 5, Opus 69, and Opus 102, and in the so-called triple concerto, Opus 56. He increased the demands on the violoncello to such an extent that in certain respects a real impulse was given to the artistic manipulation of the instrument. At the same time, the works referred to had a stimulating effect on the productive work of the future in the field of cello compositions, which received a considerable accession in regard to sonatas especially. We will note here once the names of the best-known composers who used their genius in this direction. They follow in alphabetical order. W. Sterndale Bennett, Johannes Brahms, Frederick Chopin, Gernsheim, Edvard Grieg, Hiller, Friedrich Kiel, Franz Lachner, Felix Mendelssohn Bartholdi, Ignaz Moschelis, Georg Anslow, Joachim Raff, Karl Reinecke, Reinberger, Rubinstein, that is Anton Rubinstein, Charles Saisons, Javier Schwenk, 
and Schultz and Tober. A, in a footer, it says, in all probability, Beethoven's cello sonatas, Opus 5, composed at latest in 1796, were the first of their kind. The sonatas for f- piano and violoncello, written by Bonifacio Azioli, of which Friedrich Grutzmacher has brought out a new edition, appeared, as may be concluded from the dates given by Feti in his Biographie Universelle, Volume 1, page 155, first at the beginning of our century, that is, the beginning of the 1800s. Continuing on, the following have written concertos for the violoncello. Albert Dietrich, Eckert, Molik, Joachim Raff, Karl Reinecke, Anton Rubinstein, Saisons, Robert Schumann, Tobert, and Robert Folkmann. The concerto, which as lately appeared by Johannes Brahms for violin and violoncello, must also be mentioned. Besides these, there exists a number, by no means small, of greater and lesser cello compositions, which deserve to be prominently brought forward. As, for example, Max Bruch's Col Nidre, Opus 47, Chopin's Introduction in Polonaise Brillante, Opus 3, and Duo Concertante on themes from Robert Le Diable, the cello part is Francom's production. Gernsheim's Hebrew song, Eloheinu, Ferdinand Hiller's Concertstück, Opus 104, Duo for Pianoforte and Violoncello, Opus 22, and Two Serenades, Opus 109. Franz Lachner's Serenade for Four Violoncellos, Opus 29, and Elegy for Five Violoncellos. I will not continue to name every single one, but I will mention especially Felix Mendelssohn's Variations for Pianoforte and uh, Reinecke's Three Pieces. Uh, Ferdinand Ries's Air Rus Varier, uh, Robert Schumann's Five Stücke im Volkstone, Spores Potpourri, on themes from Jasanda. Uh, another footer, I have only mentioned above the most noteworthy portion of the newer, newest violoncello compositions. For the remainder, I have to refer to Philip Roth's Guide to Violoncello Literature, published. Breitkopf and Hertel, Leipzig, 1888. If to these be added the numberless compositions which violoncellists of our century, i.e. the 1800s, have produced in concertos, concert pieces, variations, fantasias, and duets for their instrument, it must be admitted that violoncello literature in the course of time has increased very extensively. The etudes compositions for the violoncello left much to be desired during the first decade of the present century, that is, the 1800s. On this account, the theorist Siegfried Wilhelm Dane, of some consideration in his time, and who occupied himself in his younger years with cello playing, may have been induced to arrange a portion, 22 in number, of the Kreutzer violin studies for the violoncello. This work, however, published by him in June 1831,
cannot be accounted a particularly successful accomplishment. The finger and bow technique of the violoncello require an entirely different manner of treatment from that of the violin. And as these studies were written according to the capacities of the latter instrument, it is evident they can only be made available in a limited degree for the violoncello. It is not, then, to be wondered at that the Kreutzer Etudes transcribed by Dane with the best intention should have fallen into oblivion, since violoncellists have more and more sought after a thoroughly suitable system of Etudes literature, which has now grown to be a very rich field. During the last ten years, the solo manipulation of the violoncello has, in certain respects, undergone a change to its advantage in a very remarkable manner. The higher and highest tones of the instrument are no longer unduly preferred, as in Romberg's time, but the tenor positions, more in accordance with its character, are chiefly used, without, however, neglecting altogether the lower and the higher parts. The execution of passages has greatly gained thereby in this respect. It is true, the violoncello cannot rival the violin in brilliancy and agility, the strings of the former being so much longer and thicker, of which the two lower ones are made of correspondingly stout wire, from a natural impediment to the rapid emission of tones in quick runs and groups, in addition to somewhat muffled, though at the same time powerful and full tone of the deeper strings, renders difficult a brilliant execution. This is felt more especially in violoncello concertos with full orchestral accompaniment. The violoncello has, however, this advantage, that it lends itself far less to virtuoso exaggerations and confusions than does the easily portable violin. So favorably disposed for every variety of unworthy trifling, the masculine character of the violoncello, better adapted for subjects of a serious matter, and nature preclude this. But then this instrument does not offer the same wealth in means of execution which the violin is capable of developing as a solo instrument. In harmonics and pizzicato, indeed, it is at least equal to it, but in the speed and flexibility of passages, as well as in double-stopping playing, its limits are defined. It follows that on account of the larger dimensions of the violoncello and the character of the instrument, double-stopped combinations are far less suitable for the deeper than for the higher strings, a circumstance of which there is no question at all on the violin. One of the strongest points which the violoncello possesses in its favor is its suitability as a solo instrument in cantilena playing, in which it is not surpassed by any other. If the violin, with melting soprano and tenor-like voice, speaks to us now with maidenly tenderness, now in clear, jubilant tones, the violoncello, grandly moving, for the most part in the tenor and bass positions, stirs the soul by its fascinating sonority and its imposing power of intonation. Not less than by the pathos of its expression, which by virtue of its peculiar quality of tone more specially belongs to it than to the violin. There is no rivalry between the two instruments, but rather do they mutually enhance each other's power. Even so is it 
with the times which devolve on each in the sphere of chamber and orchestral music, it is greatly to be desired that future generations may foster and maintain what has been done for the art of the violoncello playing in so meritorious a manner by unwearied, self-sacrificing labor. But it is to be hoped at the same time that the technique of the instrument so carefully and finely formed to the subject of which this book is dedicated may be ever applied in the service of true and noble art only. The conclusion is, a, is an interesting section. I think it is a very good reflection of the attitudes, the prevailing thoughts about the cello and toward the cello. It seems evident to me, based on how much time he spent in the midst of that conclusion, about the qualities of the cello in a solo, in a performance setting, as compared to that of the violin. It seems it was still struggling to come out as a solo instrument on its own. And that's despite over a hundred years of concertos and sonatas and sets of variations and, let's not forget, transcriptions and etudes and character pieces. And that brings me to a point that I wish to dwell upon in a later episode. I am, let's say, nonplussed by the fact that he completely leaves out the category of transcriptions. Now, I understand that he was writing about cello music specifically and the development of the technique and cello music writing based on the techniques that were being developed over the, the last century, the 1800s. However, I wonder if cello players, that is the cellist composers, such as Georg Goltermann, uh, the Bernhard Romberg, and Julius Klingel, Friedrich Rutzmacher, those cellists would have furthered their writing or even their playing had they not spent oodles of time transcribing works from the violin repertoire or from the vocal repertoire or from just folk songs, national songs, and the like. relay one quick anecdote. I was at an organ concert. What the organist said before he played a transcription, uh, a transcription of his own, is that if the music is beautiful, play it. I happen to agree with that. What is wrong with playing transcriptions? The music is beautiful. So what if it had been written for cello or violin? What if it had been written for vo voice? We do it all the time, and it's been done from time immemorial at any rate. I am going to leave that to another episode. This concludes episode 18 about the history of the cello 
with that, I want to wish you a good day. Thank you for listening to Forgotten Cello Music. Remember, play more cello music that has been forgotten. Auf Wiedersehen, and see you in the next episode. Thank you.